I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. Claren Gross is a Toronto-based writer, theater, and visual artist, and artistic director of Pencil Kit Productions. She's also the creator and performer of I Love the Smell of Gasoline, which runs from March 8th to 19th at Toronto's Aki Studio. In this conversation, we talk about writing a show during the early days of the pandemic, her love of using overhead projectors in her shows, and much more. Here's our conversation. Claren, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Um, I've actually, turns out I've been following Pencil Kit Productions for a very long time. Well, um, and so uh, on Instagram, I've been following uh, probably a couple years now. Um, so... Uh, uh, I've seen a lot of the stuff that you post, um, and I, I, I've seen, um, I've seen a lot of overhead projectors mm-hmm. in the pencil kit productions things. And I want to get to the overhead projector, but first off, could you tell me about the show that you're currently working on? I love the smell of gasoline. I would love to. Um, so I love the smell of gasoline is a play that I wrote and been performing in. It's an autobiographical solo show. I use the word solo loosely here because there's actually three other people on stage with me doing these overhead projections, but I'm the one who speaks. Um, And it is basically a play in which I'm trying to reconcile my own personal roots to the energy industry, to oil and gas specifically. Um, I grew up in Calgary, Alberta. My dad worked in oil and gas. And how I like balance knowing that with the impending environmental apocalypse that is upon us and also how I balance, you know, in my life, I know oil and gas workers and I know Albertans and I know conservatives. And then most of my life in Toronto is kind of like a liberal art bubble of sorts and how I navigate conversations on kind of both ends of that spectrum. And yeah, how I kind of try and balance these really contradicting truths sometimes. That's kind of what the play is about. Um, now, as somebody who grew up uh, with family in the in the oil industry and the gas industry, all that sort of thing, um, what's interesting is that a few, number of years ago, my brother started going out to Alberta to work mm. in guess what, oil, and um, so I, I feel somewhat 
in in a similar situation, um, the way that my brother and I have have learned to deal with it is uh, we don't talk about <laughs> that. Yeah, because you know, for him, it's just a paycheck; doesn't matter. And for me, it's like it's a little bit more than that. Mm. Um, so, do you find something similar when you're de- when you're talking with with people back home? How do they? F- are these conversations that actually happen, or or the is is the distance too great? Um, well, I gotta be honest, most of the conversations happen with my parents. Um, so there is a different level. Well, it's just kind of the same proximity you have. It's a familial one, right? Um, and I have always felt perhaps because I grew up with that truth and I grew up in a, in a culture like of Calgary where oil and gas is not a big demon thing. It's really something that one in five people are working in. You know what I mean? That's a a made-up statistic. I don't actually know. It's just six. I just want to be clear. It's close, I'm sure. It's close, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure. But a large part of the workforce is working in that sector, right? It's not in a primary industry than in a secondary or tertiary industry to that, right? So for me, it is just like part of the fabric of life. And I don't see working in the producing end of oil and gas as any different than living in the consumption end of oil and gas, which we all live in, right? Like we all are heating our homes and driving cars and consuming those resources. And to me, that is on the same level ethically as um, working in oil and gas. I I mean, that's a broad brush stroke. Obviously, there are nuances to that opinion as well. But especially like if we're not talking about like, you know, the people who are making millions of dollars a year off of destroying rivers and coming up with conspiracies to like make sure you don't invest. You know what I mean? Obviously, of course, gradients here than people who work on the rig. You know what I mean? Of course. I mean, it's similar to like, you know, you've got you got the you know you got the plastic industry you've got you know which which has successfully convinced us all that it's our responsibility to reduce our plastic consumption also i mean you could go into as far as like the ethics of of my iphone you know all of yeah, that sort of absolutely. stuff exactly like they're so saturated with that exactly and 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 i think that you know you have the people who produce it and it makes them a living and then the rest of us just sort of mindlessly consume consume it exactly. and we don't it's so uncomfortable to think about. So, yeah. but but you're you had to think about it because of the familial connection. Um, what made you want to write about that? Um, so I actually started writing the play in the fall of 2019, which was federal election season, and it's when Wexit started becoming a thing, and Alberta and Saskatchewan like exclusively voted conservative across the board, and. You know, people in my circles really kind of think kind of think of people who vote as conservative as being um, like just completely unrelatable. Like they like it's unethical. It's all of these bad things that they cannot even begin to wrap their head around. And I'm like, okay, but there is a whole province of people voting this way. Do you know what I mean? And it can't be that everyone in that province is evil. No. Um. So. I felt this tension between the narratives that I was hearing coming out of Alberta and the narratives mm-hmm. I was hearing from my friends and just like the inability for those narratives to meet. They didn't even have an opportunity to meet, right? Or to have conversations across that. So I wanted to create a piece of art that did bridge these things, right? I see art that just argues for environmental progress and, you know, we see a lot of eco-activism art. And then I see... You don't see art about conservative oil and gas use, but <laughs> not 
Not usually. Not usually. Not usually. But like maybe you'll see a Calgary Herald article, but you don't see those sure. perspectives at the same time. And so I was like, how can I no. like layer these and try and like sandwich them into a lens to understand Canada and what is happening? How can I try and understand it all? If that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, I mean, in terms of like trying to put these things together, how, how, how do you stitch these things so that they can be coherent? How do you, how do you distill two things that seem so distant uh, into a show? Um, well, one of the things I kind of started right from the top was embracing a kind of collage structure, which is just to say to put the two contradicting truths right next to each other. So, you know, to spoil one scene in the play, I talk about how I used to work in retail and, you know, when you're working in the fitting rooms, it's actually often like a very intimate environment and you're working with like, you know, I would be working with women who are buying a dress for a significant occasion or like are in a, the middle of a really bad situation in their life and they're trying to get a dress to feel better about themselves, those kind of things. And so talking about like the emotional pull of that moment and like what it means to buy a new dress and then immediately following that up with, the, just the fact that that dress is made from spandex and polyester, which is made from petroleum, and that that dress is made overseas in bad conditions for the workers, and that it's coming wrapped in plastic, and that that dress is going to end up in a landfill. Like these, these are just both true at the same time. So a lot of the play is just collaging together these facts, so mm -hmm. we can hold them as close together as we can at the same time. And I think that having to sit with that discomfort about our own ethical choices opens you up to sitting with the discomfort of other people's as well. Just so that, it might, well, my hope is that we can start having conversations that are a little bit more compassionate and empathetic and understanding that other people are, yes, also making questionable ethical decisions. But from the same place that we are, all are, that we're trying to do our best and that the world is making that really difficult and that we have to be on the same team as we're like approaching fixing the world yeah yeah absolutely um it's it's the the whole like sitting in two different things is is kind of interesting to me um uh i wrote a a solo play that i've been performing for a number of years called the commandment a number of years ago and one of the things that i enjoyed about about that show is when i would pitch it to people it didn't matter if they were atheists or christians they both thought that they were going to get the experience that they thought they were going to get like the Christians were like, oh, it's so great. The atheist is going to learn to come to God. And the atheists were all like, oh, the atheist going to like stick it to God. Like it was like this really interesting thing where they both got it. And interestingly, my director was an atheist, but he recently performed it in Edmonton. And so we've both come at it at different from different ways to create this same show. And the show doesn't change. It's just that your perspective changes. Mm -hmm. In terms of your audience, is this a show? that you could perform in Calgary and in Toronto and have people have their own experience with it? Or is this a show that is kind of just for Toronto kind of thing? That's a great question. I am actually trying to take it to Calgary. So grand scheme, yes, I think it's a show that could be performed in both and that I've, I've tried to write about both cities in a way that will make them both feel honored. Um. It would have to be tailored a little bit, though, because it really is specifically like you, Toronto audience, don't know this about Alberta, which would have to be 
tailored just a little bit, right? But um, not a lot of adjustments. It would just have to be like, you Albertans do know this about Alberta. Yeah. Or <laughs> like, yeah. Toronto's don't know about this about us. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I do Absolutely. try to always speak to the audience as an us. And I think that like when I'm talking to my Toronto audience, it's an us, us Toronto people. Yeah. But when I'm in Calgary, it would be talking, this is an us, you and me, Calgary people. Um, you mentioned starting to write it in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always fascinated about the writing process and how long it takes uh, to write something. Um, the commandment took me eight years. Um, <laughs> I know. But I've, I've said, you know, the solo gets easier. It's just like the first time you write is really, really intimidating. Um, in I terms had a pandemic. Like, you know what I mean? I had I mean, a lot of time. You did. You did. You did. You did have that. But I'm just going to. Okay. So during the pandemic, I think the first year of the pandemic, I had no creative juices whatsoever. Like for most of 2020, I was just like, I'm just doom scrolling. Just whatever. This is all I have in me right now. No creativity. Um, did you find that that in those first days of the pandemic and those first months that you were able to be creative or was it were you in a similar situation? Um, I will give the context of I was really blessed in the pandemic with I didn't end up in a any kind of financial precarity like my job transitioned onto um, I work as a tutor and that transitioned online. If anything, I could take on mm. more students like I'm right. a even better. Um, and my roommate worked from home. So a lot of the things that made life really hard for people during the pandemic, I did not have. And so for me, I ended up with a lot more time and my you know, biggest obstacle in life was boredom. So I would say I actually did get a creative burst i did a lot of art visual art i did a lot of creative writing like poetry um mm-hmm. i actually just released an illustrated chapbook of poetry with gap riot press in the summer oh nice from all that and also part of this creative moment in my life with writing this play so yes i would say it went in bursts though like i would have you know three nights where you're staying up until 3 a.m writing and then not touch it for months and then right three nights where you're like yeah absolutely um now, that process of writing this play, um, you know, the first draft is always the first draft. And then um, if you look back from between the version that you are uh, you're rehearsing now and about to perform and you compare it with the early days, do they look like the same show or are they is there like vast differences? What 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 how has the play changed? That's a good question. And it's funny because I was truly yesterday looking at the first draft for the first time in years. And there are definitely still a lot of sections in it that made it into the play. I wouldn't say it's a completely different beast, but it was longer. So for example, the play right now is like uh, is 28 pages, like on a normal printer page. Plus it has like a column of uh, stage directions. So it's quite a short play. It's like 65 minutes. The original draft is 50 pages. <laughs> with no column for stage directions was much longer much more rambly and i know that the way i just approached it is i would just kind of journal about all these different things and just figure out the idea was i'll figure out later how and if any of these things fit together for now i'm just going to write out these chunks like create generate some material that i can then collage together was kind of the strategy so i would say it was a much more verbose version of what I am now working with. 
Um, the way that you describe that, I'm I'm curious about um, your theater school uh, experience. If you did go to theater school, um, where did you go? I went to TMU. Okay. Um, and at any time in that time, did you do what's called a vocal mask? Or does that phrase mean anything to you? I don't think that means anything okay. to me. I am forgetting, forgetting all my schooling, but yeah. Tell I, me. <laughs> I will. I, I I will say that if you have done a vocal mask, you would not ever forget having done okay. a vocal mask, because you're you you uh, vocal mask the way that we we did it. I went to George Brown Theater School, and we would do one each year, and you're collaging of from found material. So you're like finding material, and you're trying to create a cohesive entertainment out of it. Um, but that knowledge has sort of like carried over to or that ability has carried over to the way that I now create solo shows in terms of like I write and I write and I write and then I see what comes out of that writing and what can I use and that sort of thing so just curious if that sort of uh, came out of a theater school thing or did you find that on your own for me it came out of actually devised theater um I'm thinking of I directed and dramaturged uh, a play in 2016 Persephone so we adapted as an ensemble the story of Persephone for the stage and how I did that is I would give the cast prompts that I was curious about and they would respond and we just kept doing that until I had we had generated a big massive material and then I kind of spliced things together and checked in with them and we put it together and then I was kind of like okay I could do that on my own like I could give myself prompts about things I'm kind of curious about and see what comes out um, it's also the way that uh, I co-wrote a play called Shadow Girls with Kesha Palm. And we also did the same thing of like, we have to come up with five offers. Here are some prompts. Mm. Like basically, just forcing yourself to generate something. Because mm -hmm. it's two different skills, generating and then piecing together, right? And I think if you treat them separately, they both feel easy. When you try and like do it at the same time, you're like, I have to create a play. That feels oh, you difficult. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. No, that's, I mean, I sort of stumbled on, 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 you know, taking the vocal mask, uh, 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 exercise into creating a, a show because the idea of creating a solo show is too big, too big, so big, especially your first one. But just generally, it's like, I, this is going to be me doing this thing and it's a bit too much. But the idea of like, just like writing a bunch of ideas and seeing where they go and then like finding out if they're cohesive things and putting it together later, that, that is doable. Absolutely. Breaking it into steps. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So now I want to know about the overhead projector because um, I grew up in a time, because I'm an old man, I grew up in a time when the overhead projector was like every class had one. Yeah. The big light bulb, the thing, and the, the acetate, and the teacher would like write on it and stuff like that. It was like, just like, that's how we did it. And, you know, that's, you know, sometimes they would do, they'd come in, they've had everything prepared and it would just be like, slap the acetate on the thing. And then we would all take frantic notes, that sort of thing. I don't even know if they if they use those anymore in school. I highly doubt it. How? <laughs> what What was your experience of 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 the overhead projector, and how did you decide that you were going to use that in theatrical productions? Um, I have two answers for this. The one, the smart answer, is that I liked the way that overhead projector art as a medium was a bit of a reduce, reuse, recycle thing. It was reducing an entire lighting grid to one simple machine. It's repurposing something that has been antiquated. It is 
a lot of the projections are created with found objects. So there's like a bit of recycling in the things you use to create the projections. So thematically that all fit. Plus I liked the idea that it was this, a learning tool, right? And the play is in some ways kind of like, I don't want to say luxury because that sounds boring, but there is definitely an element of like sharing research to the play. So thematically, it really seemed to fit. That's the good answer. Perhaps the real answer is just that I love overhead projection art as a medium, and I wanted to do that. So I was like, it's my play. I got to do what I want. I want to use overhead projectors. That kind of answer is no, is absolutely my favorite answer to any question. Uh, years ago, I was at, many, many years ago, I was at, at Nuit Blanche, and I came across this installation where there was this structure and they had balloons and they had lights and it was fascinating. And I went inside and it was great. And I said to the guy, the artist was there. I said, where did you come up with this? And he said, I just wanted to put a balloon on a light. Yeah. I thought it would be cool. And I was like, <laughs> that is 100% the best answer that I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. That's the real answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's got to be the, a lot of real art answers, but we have to come up with better things for grant applications, right? I think we should be able to say, I just thought it would be cool to put a thing on a thing. And I think that should be acceptable. Mm-hmm. And I was right. It was interesting. So, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the balloon guy, he's like, yeah. Okay. There you go. Um, now tell me about um, the set for this show. It's Is it, it there's, Sounds like there's more to it than just projections. So tell me about 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 the the visual in terms of the set for this show. Yeah, so we've worked with Echo Zhu as a as a set designer, and then also worked with Jessica Heemstra, who is a visual artist. And what Jessica has done for us is create these big <clears throat> plastic bag art installations. So kind of picture like a waterfall made out of plastic garbage bags pouring out of an oil barrel is what's happening on stage. And those are quite beautiful. And I, I'm going to just go ahead and steal her words, um, Jessica Heemstra, just so we all know who I am crediting here. <laughs> but she told me when she <clears throat> was building these, that what she liked about what we were creating that mirrored what she um, felt was happening in the play is that we're playing on that tension between something being beautiful and giving us something appealing that we like but also being wrong and dirty and so you see this sculpture and it's quite voluminous and shiny and really pretty looking but it is made of plastic like it's made of this awful awful thing that we're all here to like you know talk about how bad it is so that tension and i thought that was really neat and also the tension between something being so clean and beautiful and pristine but actually so dirty and evil. Yeah. So that contest, which I liked. I was like, yeah, I like it. Let's, yeah. let's put those up. <laughs> that's that's fine. Now, you are a theater artist and you are also a visual artist. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a podcast about theater, but I like, I like the arts. So tell me about, can you tell me about your visual art and when you started painting or, or doing visual art? Yeah. Um. So I I actually was into visual art before I was into theater. And in high school, I was more committed to the visual arts than I was to theater until an amazing, amazing drama teacher changed my mind. <laughs> um, but my visual art is mostly drawing, actually, line drawing um, with just ink um, and also more like realism drawing with pencil work. And then in the last couple of years, I've just started to get into painting with gouache and watercolor and acrylic 
um, but I really like it. One of the things I like about my visual arts practice is I didn't end up pursuing it professionally. I continued to pursue it out of just like a desire to create art, which means I think I have a lot, there's no pressure in there. You know, if I don't create visual art for a year, literally no one's going to care. <laughs> and when I do create it, it's always motivated, like truly from an emotional place. Mm. Um, you know, in the way as a theater artist, I often am creating because there's a like a sense that I need to, like you need to prove something or like if you don't create something, you're going to fall off the treadmill of relevancy or that's my job. Like I have to, you know, to do something, mm. I have to make something. And I don't feel that way with art. So mm. visual art. So yeah, they're complementary that way. Yeah. I want to drill down on that thing you just said about, about um, the, the way that if there's the pressure to create, mm -hmm. to make sure that you're doing something. Um, and I think that that's something that, that um, we all have felt and we all feel like if I'm not doing this thing, then am I an artist? And then the pandemic happened and a lot of people mm -hmm. were like, oh, like, I, what does this mean? Who am I? All this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and some people hit the ground running and creating and other people uh, took longer. Um, did you experience with the, with on the theater uh, realm, um, a sort of like taking a downtime, taking a breath? Um in the past three and a half years um and how did that feel as because uh, it's something that we don't tend to do in theater mm -hmm. very often um yeah well actually to be honest my work as a theater artist especially because i work mostly as a director actually means that i go long swaths of time without gigs um and that's not uncommon to me. And I was actually in the middle of a long swath of not working on a project when the pandemic hit. And in a weird way, this is going to sound terrible, but in a weird way, everyone was stopped to do theater, stopped from doing theater. And I was no longer just like taking a break. Everyone was taking a break. And so <laughs> it made me feel less of that pressure. And I got to relax. And then that coupled with the fact that I started writing this play and I also started um, working with a number of other playwrights to get their work off the ground. So I actually, in the last couple of years, had had a big resurgence and crossed off a lot of career milestones in my life um, that, yeah, so for me, the pandemic kind of had that opposite effect. But I do want to stress, especially if, you know, it's theater people who are listening to yes. this. I do not have back to back to back to back work. Like, I think there is a conception that everyone is getting a ton of work all the time. Oh, yeah. We love to portray that. Yeah. We love to portray that. Like, oh, what is working so on all the time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I hate that question, by the way. <laughs> what are you I hate working that. on? <laughs> That's the first question that theater people always ask each other. Yeah. And I hate it. Partially because I, like, I'm always working on something, but I don't like to talk about it always. Like, if, yeah. especially if it's an early stage, people are like, yes. what are you working on? And I'll be like, it's too early to talk about it. I don't want to say anything quite yeah. yet. And they get awkward and shit. But it's like it's such a such a it's like the worst question. Exactly. The question I've switched to is what's got you excited these days? Mm, see, that's a much better question. Yeah. And it could be work. You know, someone will, you know, if they want to talk about their work, then they can use that as an excuse. But it might also be like, I'm just learning how to bake bread. I'm like, I mean, hey, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Now, the name of your theater company, the theater company you're the artistic director of is Pencil Kit Productions. <laughs> now, where does that name come from? Is that does it come out of your visual art or 
Tell me about about that. I got to be honest with you, that name comes from when I like signed up for the fringe lottery in 2015 and you have to put down a company name. And I looked around my house and said, what is nearby that I can name a company after? And I saw a pencil kit and I was like, pencil kit productions. Yeah, a bit of an alliteration thing going on. I'll go with that. And the desperation (laughs) of the desperation of fringe application forms has been the birth of so many theater company names and every time i hear it it's like you think well, there's gonna be some like real deep answer to it it's just like i needed a name for fringe and this is what we ended up with <laughs> yeah well good on fringe for just pushing us all to <laughs> exactly quickly come up exactly. but i feel good either that like you know the name did work and we had like a nice logo design at that time and i'm like nice. yeah it all it all worked i'm glad that it worked out nice nice um now you alluded to um a bit of your theater journey, but I want to I want to talk a bit more about about your theater origin story because you 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 mentioned that you were going to go into the visual arts until a theater teacher changed your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, now, at that point, before that, did you have a any kind of experience of theater, or was that your first experience of theater? And how did it be, go? How did one teacher change your focus from art to I'm going to do theater? with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had theater. I've been in like, you know, I was in Calgary Young People's Theater plays, you know, like the community theater for kids growing up. Um, I did a lot of theater outside of school, but it was always an outside of school thing. And then when I was picking my courses for high school, I felt like I had to kind of pick because I was also, I'm also really big on math and sciences. I knew I was going to take at least two sciences, all the math courses. Um, big on the academics. So it really came down to I could only pick one art that I was going to do. And I remember thinking at the time, it's easy for me to do theater with this community theater that I do theater with. And at school, it makes more sense for me to focus in on visual art. So that was kind of the starter to it. And then I ended up auditioning for the school play and getting a role, which I remember really shocked me at the time because I wasn't part of like the drama kid community and it was like a five person show. So I really did not think I was going to get it. It was kind of a shot in the dark. And I did. And it was an incredible experience. This drama teacher, her name is Caitlin Gallishan Lull, and she works at Western Canada High School. And she's a brilliant director. And like, enough so that her kids just did a devised theater piece that went to high performance rodeo. So very neat work that she's doing with kids. Um, And that was incredible. So after that show, I was like, oh, my God, like, I think I need to get into drama class. Like, I want to be with these people. I want to keep working with you. And so she let me skip grade 10 and go straight into 11 and 12 in grade 12. Like I did grade 11 and 12 theater back to back in the last year of high school. Um, And in that same year, my parents were probably like, what just happened? So I was committed to the visual arts, but I was also committed to math. So I thought I would do something like architecture because that would unify the math side of my brain and the visual arts. So my parents are all like geared up for years. They're like, yeah, she's going to do architecture. It's going to be great. What a great job. And then I'm like, actually, <laughs> I think I'm going to be a theater artist. Um, but yeah, the decision was made, frankly, by my drama teacher. She pulled aside like a handful of us one day in grade 12 and was like, okay, we need to start preparing your auditions for university. And I was like, what? That's like a thing that people go to, you know, like, I didn't even think that was a thing. I remember looking around at the other people being like, did I miss a conversation? Like, why am I in this conversation? 
she just talked about it as if it was like a real thing that could actually happen. And I was like, well, if it is a real thing that can actually happen, then sign me up. I want to do that. Was that like your first inclination or first inkling of the idea that this is something that you could do? Like uh, that this could be like a profession? Yeah. Yeah. Like it really didn't occur to me that that was like a professional thing that I think real people did. I mean, I went to plays. I don't know what I was thinking, but it just felt it felt so far away. Like those are stars on stage. That's not like a real thing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then so you went to you went to TMU and uh, was that uh, that's what brought you to Toronto? Yes. And uh, you stayed. I stayed. My mother hates that, but yeah, I stayed. <laughs> which was more? Which was a more difficult conversation? Telling your mother you were going into theater, or that you were going to stay in Toronto? Probably that I was going to stay in Toronto. But she got, <laughs> she got like, uh, you know, it'd be like, oh, I'm coming home for summer each year, and then I come home for summer a little bit less, and then I got a job, and then I'm just going to stay put. So it was like a slow dying of the dream that i would return. oh you kind of eased into it yeah but i gotta say the dream was not dead like she every time i talked to her on the phone she's like you can still move back to calgary i mean i could probably have, like afford some property at some point in the future if i move back to calgary that'll never happen in Toronto. no no and that is why alberta advertises <laughs> I know. the subway telling toronto needs to go to alberta and i do look at those sometimes and i'm like yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah Absolutely. Um, now, math. I will be upfront about about my math experience. I was diagnosed with dyscalculia very very young, um, so math is not a thing that 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 my brain goes to. Was math always a thing for you? Was it always like a thing? I'm good at this. Yeah, I was always like good at it when I was a kid, and then in high school, I was doing like advanced math courses, or I like completing calculus early while I was in grade eleven. And that was fun. I liked it. Um, but and I sometimes do wish that I'd had a teacher that had done the same thing that my drama teacher had done for me when I was in high school for math. Because again, it just didn't occur to me that math was something that could be fun and interesting. Like I was good at it, mm. but it wasn't a cool, interesting thing to be good at. So I just didn't pay much attention. And now we're just naturally good at the math and and nobody was ever like, we can nurture this. No, no one really pushed me in any. My parents really just like let me do whatever the heck I wanted, Um, which was lots of stuff. I mean, I, you know, I did all the advanced math courses, but no one was ever like, yeah, you should really, you know what I mean? Um, But then I became a math tutor. And once I started teaching math on my own, you know, there's no the the burden of it is gone because now I'm like kind of just doing it for fun for my own thing to teach other, right. other people i was like oh this is so much funner like when i do when i get to teach calculus now i'm like really enjoy it those are my favorite sessions and i'm like do I you find do you find more. do you find interesting ways to help people understand the math are you working with people who are like having trouble with math and you find different ways to to, to help them uh understand what the numbers are doing yeah i do yes and i work with kids the youngest kids i work with have been in grade uh five and then the oldest ones i work with are in grade 12 um and varying ranges right there's like kids who are working in calculus and then there's kids who are just trying to figure out their times tables um so yeah and each kid needs math explained in a slightly different way so it is also Mm -hmm. kind of a creative endeavor to try and try and teach different people math in a way that will work yeah right but also like it has to come from my brain so it has to be how i understand math right but painted in a way that they will understand it you have to find some kind of translation tool yeah 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 it's a lot like directing actually (laughs) <laughs> right. something in your brain yes. and you need it in yes. their brain how are you gonna yes yeah 
Interesting. Interesting. The worlds do collide. <laughs> um, now, this show that you started writing in 2019, um, and you know, you're basically about to perform it. Uh, as we record this, you're going to start performing this next week. Yeah. Um, not to not to stress you out or anything. No, it's not but, at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know that that you are super proud of the team for this show. Mm-hmm. When did the team for I Love the Smell of Gasoline start to be assembled? Hmm. The team that we have right now was assembled for the fall. For the we did a workshop performance at uh, the Rutes Festival in the fall. Um, but the project has been developed by a lot of different hands. Um, so I want to give a shout out to Luna Linares and Emily Jung and Jay Northcott, who have also worked on the project in the past as projectionists through different workshops. Um, but the, the team we have now came together in the fall. And so that's all the designers and the projectionists that are currently working on the show, the stage manager, et cetera. That's what it really came together. And, um, how how did you go about finding the right people to fill these roles? What does that what does that process look like to find people to be like, hey, we're doing this weird projection thing. Who are the right people to 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 assemble into the mm-hmm. the Avengers for this show? I gotta tell you, it's really difficult, actually. It's really difficult. Like down to like how do you even put out a call? Like who are you trying to target? There are no projection artists out there, like or overhead projection artists out there. Um so how did we do that? <laughs> well, one of our... I'm just going to tell you case by case what it was. Um, Elise, who is one of our projection artists, Elise Waugh, she worked um, on Shadow Girls, which is the play that I referenced that I co-created with, uh, with Kesha Pond. And that was also an overhead projection play. And so she worked on that and she is gifted at this stuff. Like uh, if there was an overhead projection artist title, she would... You know, just she's she does a great job. Um, so she was, a, I, and she actually doesn't even work in theater as much anymore. Um, she works as a doula and a yoga instructor, and has a, her own like business that she's running. And I just called her up, and I was like, "Listen, I need you to come back to theater. I need you to do this for me." <laughs> and she was like, "Yeah, you know what? Absolutely. Like, I'll go through that open door." So that's how I got her on the project. Um, Jesse. Uh, is a projection artist who works as a puppeteer often. So I targeted them because I was like, okay, someone who works in puppeteering is going to be good with their hands, good with visuals. They've done shadow puppets. That feels like it's got lots of transferable skills and it did. They're also great at it. And then Steph, our last uh, projectionist, was one of the directors, the co-director, Will. One of his colleagues that he'd worked with before and i honestly had just been like hey we need a third projection artist do you know anyone who would have this niche set of skills including being good with their hands visually oriented a sense of rhythm uh anyone and he was just like okay well there's this one girl that i think would be really really great to work with like she's never done it before but i just have that feeling she'll be good at it and she was so we lucked out but um in the past when i put out calls I don't know. I just say everything I just said about you have to be good with rhythm, good with your hands. It's yeah, it's so niche. I don't know. Really niche skill set. But fascinating. <laughs> I mean, it's not something you see every day. So like I can I only I can only think of one other show that used 
um, overhead projection um, that I saw many years ago. Um, but it's the only show that I've seen that that, that has used the overhead projector. Projector, um, and so and it didn't wasn't like the I would say the slides were uh, uh, utility slides and not like artistic slides um, for that show. So it's not something that you often see. So it's interesting to 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 hear you describing like how how do you describe what this is for people who were going to do it? You you are creating a new role. Yeah. I actually, you know, I often describe it as like choreography. I'm like, it is an hour and it's, you know, it's 65 minutes of you doing choreography with your hands. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not also, it's also not just uh, uh, transparencies. We do print out a lot of transparencies, like those acetates you were talking about. Mm. But we also like put a dish full of water on the projector and we also, you know, layer on. Of course, now I can't think of a single other image. Of course, of <laughs> course, but you know that, that's just a lot of different different things. So it's not just yeah, you know, yeah. Anyway, the the interesting thing is as uh, um now do you this is like such a logistics question, but do you as somebody who's used this overhead project projector in the past, do you have a more than one projector or in B? more than one bulb or is it like this is the only projector and if it if it ever dies we can never do a projector show again because nobody makes these Uh, yeah it is a bit what no just i was reacting to the (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is a bit of a like a low-key stress that we run into every once in a while okay so we, we have i own personally five overhead projectors um, which is just a reasonable amount for any sane person to have. Absolutely, absolutely. Most people own Collection. at least between uh, three and five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I've just accumulated these over the years. Um, but I would say only three of them really work great, and those are the three we're using for the show. Um, we did have to buy a bunch of backup bulbs, and the bulbs are expensive because they are so niche. Right. Yeah. Um, and if one of those breaks you know we have an intro we could use one of the other projectors in the interim but it would have some kind of sacrifice like not as bright would be the biggest thing um but otherwise we have to try and source another one last minute i mean you can find them on kajiji and you can find them on facebook but i am also kind of cognizant i'm like there is a limited time stamp like eventually there are going to be no overhead projectors like you know they're simple machines and they're going to break like supply is dwindling not just supply of, of the of the machines themselves, but all the, the bulbs, like the bulbs, and there's no replacement like, parts. Like if one thing breaks on it, no, screwed. you would you would almost have to find somebody who could like, um, if possible, uh, uh, 3D print you a replacement because nobody's yeah. producing those parts anymore. You know what though? I do wonder. You know, if you had money to hire people who are good at building things. They're pretty damn simple machines. Sure, yeah. Like, I feel like you could build a projector from scratch and, it, you know, the right person could do that probably without sure. too much sweat. Yeah. <laughs> Just they have to also blow, like, manually create the bulb as well. Oh, yeah. Just to find yeah. somebody to do that. That's well, the... I guess you could probably use a different type of bulb, maybe. I guess, yeah. I mean, maybe if you're building it from scratch, scratch, you can use whatever, yeah. Maybe, mm. maybe. Hmm. When the industrial version of the <laughs> show happens, you'll be able to 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 do that. Um, now, in terms of like 
putting this show on its on its feet and getting the final version. You're I mean, like I said, you're opening next week or this week if you're listening to this uh, uh, when it comes out. <laughs> um, in terms of like putting it putting it together, uh, you've got your team. What goes into the process of like the behind the scenes, getting it on the stage and working mm-hmm. with the with, with all of that? Like how how does that come together? Um, it's really really collaborative. So I'm co-directing the piece with William Dow, who is a really brilliant emerging director. And all the projections are, I would say, collaboratively developed. Some of them have been developed in the room with the projection artists that are present. Some of them were developed in workshops with the previous projectionists that I mentioned. Some of them were just concocted in my brain as I was writing. Um, But we always get into the room and everybody including the stage manager i like i'm really who has actually also taylor young has also worked as one of the projectionists before um everyone gets a say in what the projections are going to look like it's so that's really collaborative um and it was a bit of a weird process especially for me because i'm the playwright and the performer and then also like designing these projections and co-directing and in the fall what it looked like we had to prioritize because staging the projections takes a lot of time. Um, So we kind of built the show around the projections and then I had to act within them was kind of the process, which is different than, you know, a typical structure where you build a show around actors and then you add design on top of that. Mm. It was the opposite. We built the container for the show and then inserted me as a performer. But I could definitely see the need for that as far as like, if you've got all this choreography going on to get, to get the projections working um that's sort of the the machine of the show that 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 has to work and you can as the performer can be somewhere within that Mm -hmm. it would be almost impossible to work the other way around absolutely yeah so it's a Um, yeah strange go ahead oh yeah absolutely absolutely um i mean you've done a show you've done shows that did use projection in the past was that a similar uh, 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 situation then, or is this a more elaborate uh, uh, production uh, as far as the, the the projections go? This is more elaborate just in that, I mean, right now it's a 65-minute show, but at the Rutas Festival, it was an 80-minute show. Um, side note, I should get a lot of props as a playwright for shaving that many pages off my script. <laughs> So that's a lot of pages. That's a lot of babies to kill. Uh, to, to kill. Yeah. yeah, I was like, "Ooh, my darlings." Anyway, <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Uh, so yeah, just the scale. Like, there's just so much more of it. Shadow Girls was a really tight, like I don't know, under 50 minutes. I think um, short little show, but it still took. It was very labor intensive to get 50 minutes of overhead projection work. And in, for that show, we had four projectors coming, like in an L-shaped stage. So. Um, the two projectors on each side going from different directions. It was quite uh, elaborate tech mm-hmm. time there. Um, yeah. So yeah, this one is bigger just in that it's bigger space, more design components, and a longer script. But technically about the same. Like the images can only get so complex um, with the overhead projectors. So yeah, does that answer the question? Yeah. Absolutely, it does. Absolutely, it does. Uh, so last question for you is after all of this time working on this show from 2019, going through workshops and doing it at the Rudis Festival and, and, and now getting to here, 
Is there something you are most looking forward to discovering from this production? Yes. This production, the big new thing that I'm very excited about is that we have ASL interpretation on two of the nights. Um, and we just, you know, I'm speaking today. What is it today? It's February 28th. We just started ASL rehearsals today. So the next three days are dedicated to ASL. Um, um, we've got Sage. Uh, I actually haven't said their name out loud. Their last name out loud. Lovell. Lovell. Um, who is working as a performer alongside me. And we have Gaytree Persaud and um, hearing interpreters as well. And it's just been fascinating. Like today was fascinating to see how do we translate from my spoken English into ASL mm. and how do we, it's just really, really fascinating how we block it. And mm. I'm really excited to see how that turns out. Fascinating. Fascinating. My father was uh, a teacher at schools for the deaf uh, through most of, uh, of my life. So um, although I never picked up the sign language, um, I always was fascinated with watching him turn words into into signs. It's not just like it's not a direct translation. So hmm. I always found that fascinating. Yeah. One of the things like I learned today that there are three different signs for Calgary. Um, <laughs> and all of them are interesting. I'm going to describe them because I, I love them so much. One is a shaking C and one is like finger guns, which makes sense, like a cowboy <laughs> Western thing for Calgary, which I love. And then one is gesturing to the elbow, which I thought was great because I introduced Calgary off the top of the show as being at the Mogenstis, which is um, Blackfoot for elbow. It's the place where the Bow River and the Elbow River meet. And so that is such a beautiful interpretation of how great for it to be a gesture to the elbow. So I love that. That's fascinating. That's great. Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy.